0: All about Jesus. It's all about the Lord. All about the Savior
1: and the of his word. It's all about Jesus. Welcome to It's All About Jesus, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel Eagle. You are listening to a Sunday morning message by Pastor Mike Sasso. If you would like to join us for church, we meet every Sunday. 10 a.m. at North Star Charter School, 839 North Linder Road in Eagle, Idaho. You may also join us live streaming at that time. Go to cceagle.org at 10 a.m. to watch the whole service live. If you can't join us then, you can always go back and watch the video. Let's listen in to today's message. Jesus. It's all about Jesus.
0: It's all about the Lord. Yes. Oh, you want to go back? All of Our stuff is up on YouTube, so you could follow our studies. If you really are interested in the book of Hebrews, which we've been going deep, and you want to go back and go, you know, I missed this text. Folks, I hope you understand. I've been moving slow on purpose in Hebrews because to me it's a book filled with depth Filled with Christ, also filled with some confusion because people misunderstand or misread or sometimes purposely twist the text because they don't like what it says, so they find a way to explain it away. But I'm going deep, okay? Today is no exception. We're going to, what are the five verses we're covering today? So would you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6? And I think I'm excited because Hebrews 6 started out a little scary. If you've been with us, I, I took three weeks covering just the apostasy part, which is heavy and and almost depressing foreboding and yet hebrew six ends on a real happy note matter of fact last week i think it was called better things concerning you and this week we're looking at jesus the anchor of our soul and remember the letter of hebrews as we've been studying it together it's particularly aimed at jewish christians encouraging them to push on in christ don 't turn back don't go back to your old ways because there's nothing like Jesus um, you know in, in the first six and it will continue in the future chapters we'll compare Jesus Christ to all of the things in the Old Testament, all the things in the old covenant he 's superior there 's no one better, nothing better than Jesus and what he offers he 's superior to the angels he 's superior to the prophets he 's superior. To Moses, because you know who's the big hero for all the Jews—Moses and Abraham and Elijah—and so the book, the book of Hebrews is just showing you, folks, don't don't trade Jesus back for anything else. There's no one better than him. The new covenant actually supersedes and replaces most of what took place in the old covenant it's the fulfillment of the old covenant and his ministry even replaces as we're looking we're going to start looking at today jesus ministry replaces the old priesthood as we'll look at we start getting into this week and really next week the priesthood of melchizedek Uh, and his sacrifice of course his sacrifice the lamb of god that takes away the sins of the world You don't have to go back to the animal sacrifices because we have jesus who did it all we don't need any more sacrifices okay now a little note before we dive into the text is that a short time after this letter was written not too long after the letter was written uh the uh, romans came and sacked the city of jerusalem the temple was destroyed which did away with the, the priesthood services and the animal sacrifices everything of the that was prescribed in the Torah that was taking place in the temple in those days prior to 70 AD when it was destroyed everything came to a screeching halt but that's okay because Jesus had come the Messiah had arrived and the new has come and the old has done away with it was God's perfect timing I don't think it was like what a tragedy the temple's gone I think it was God's perfect timing And the Jewish Christian had to understand this. Of course, this was before the sacking of the temple, but it was certainly to prepare them that all you need is Jesus, okay? And you don't have to draw back to the old, outdated system. Now, in today's text, we're going to look particularly at, uh, you know, we've looked at Moses, the law. Today, we're going to look a little bit at, and I think last week we did too, at Abraham. Because Abraham is the, the founding father of our faith, right? Don't we call him Father Abraham, the, the founder of the faith? And um, we need to press forward and follow the example of Abraham. Where we left off last week is in, let's just look back a few verses. Verse 11, where the writer of Hebrews, speaking on behalf of the church leadership and the other apostles, he says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. And that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, see we're going back to Abraham all the way to the beginning. Because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. We covered this last week, but I want you to get the flow as we move into 15 and 16, which we did end on 16, but I want you to look at 15, something I don't know if I brought up in, in last week. In verse 15, it says that after he had patiently endured, speaking of Abraham, he obtained the promise. Did he? Did Abraham obtain the fullness of the promise that God promised him? You think about it before you answer Because he really just kind of saw the, the beginning of it. It's kind of a yes and no to that answer, because First of all, when God promised Abraham that he would bless him with a son and make him a mighty nation, he waited 25 years before he had a son. And I think 10 years into it, his wife talked him into plan B, and which caused a big mess, right? To, to Ishmael instead of Isaac, and it was a mess. Don't jump ahead on God. Wait, sometimes it's longer than you think. 25 years before the promise of Isaac was fulfilled, and he never saw the fulfillment that he'd become a father of many nations. As a matter of fact, if you study in Genesis 17 and onward, you study Abraham's life. It took 60 years before Abraham was a grandfather of two sons. I'm glad I didn't have to wait that long. And, and it, it was, of course, Jacob and Esau, but he never in his lifetime, all of Abraham's lifetime, he never saw the fulfillment of the promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. Remember that promise? Uh, let's see, I think I wrote it down, Genesis 22:18. He never saw that because that was not until Christ that all the nations of the earth were blessed through the, his seed, Christ, okay? So here's the first principle I want to start you out with, and it's, it's in your fill it's your fill principle. God always keeps his word. I want you to get that, God always keeps his word, but it's never in our timing. Okay, th- that, there's the, the second fill in our timing. Have you noticed that in life? God always keeps his word, but it's never in our timing. God is never late, but rarely on time. Huh? Well, he's really on time in his timing. But in our timing, we feel like quite often he's late. He's never late, but he's rarely on time. Father, as we look at this text now, we pray that you would make very clear to us, would you want to say to us, Lord, I know that you're speaking generally, i know lord god that as as a people there are some general things you want us all to learn doctrinally but lord i also know you want to speak personally my prayer lord is for each and every single one of us individually that whatever it is we're dealing with whatever it is we're waiting on from you whatever it is you promised us and or are doing in our life and we're losing patience that we would hear your voice personally lord speak through your word speak through me a prophetic word to each of us that when we leave this place we'll know that God has spoken, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now we're going on to the promise we already said. I want to make sure you got that how long it took for god 's promise to take place in Abraham's life. but speaking of the reliability of God 's promise, the author of Hebrews now compares man 's oaths with God 's oath. Look at verse 16, where we pick up this week. for men indeed, swear by great, excuse me, swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. I mean, you want to know I'm telling the truth? I swear by God. I swear by the Bible. I don't know what you did growing up, but our, our word at our house was honest to God. That's, that's the way we did at the Sasso home. All the boys, when, we wanted to, when nobody believed us, we'd, we'd say honest to God. And everybody's got their way of doing it. But, but there's a, an oath to take to try to prove that you could trust me. People do this all the time, you know, and, you know, swear in the Bible. In the courtroom, by the way, have you noticed when you, they, because I don't know if they've changed it, it used to be hand on the Bible, now I guess you have the book of your choice. But you, we'd say, you'd say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Why do they do that in court? Because man really generally can't be trusted. I mean, in general, we're liars. And so, do you swear to God? you swear in a stack of Bibles? you swear in your mother's grave? I mean, there's all kinds of things because, basically, human beings can't really be trusted. We're basically dishonest. I like the way the New Living Translation puts verse 16. Listen to this. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. <laughs> and without any question, that oath is binding. You know, if you ever have a hard time understanding what your Bible says, compare it to different translations, and the New Living is a good one that I use quite often. So, verse 17, I told you, we're only covered five verses, so I can move really slow, okay? And keep in mind, verse 16 through 20 is packed with key words and phrases that we're going to take a close look at. Okay, verse 17 says... Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. So here we're seeing God is confirming it with an oath. You know, when I, it's funny, when I teach the Bible, quite often I catch things I'd never caught before just if, by reading it. You know, I'm going to stand before you so I better really know it. I'm re- but something really struck me as I read verse 17 this last week. Why would God have to prove himself to anybody? Why would God ever have to say, I swear to me? You know? I mean, the creator of the universe. He owes us nothing. You just better believe him, right? And yet, what I discover as I read my Bible, God stoops down to our level quite often. Have you noticed that? All throughout the Bible, there's pictures of the God of all the universe who is unreachable, unfathomable, unknowable. He's he's beyond our ways, and yet he stoops down that we might know him, that we might see him. As a matter of fact, this is your your next fill-in, which I just wanted you to think about a little bit. It's God often stoops down to our level to connect to us. Think about it. Everything... We know about God only because He stooped down to our level, right? The prophets, I'm I'm using your next fill-in, the next word is prophets. The prophets, He could have just said, you got to seek me, but He sends prophets to speak through them. The Bible in our language, you ever think about that? God could say, all right, guys, I only speak Hebrew. I want you all to learn Hebrew. We all got God's word in our language. It's God lowering Himself so that we might grasp Him, so that we might hear Him. The Bible in our language. Even the next fulfillment is, even Christ himself is a picture of God stooping, isn't it? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The reason why we know God the way we do today is because God stooped down and emptied his glory into a body of flesh that he might be touched and heard and seen and that he might touch our lives. Christ himself is a picture of that stooping. And by the way, as we study the promises of God and understanding how God is lowering himself, who is he doing this all for? Look at verse 17 again. For God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. Who are the heirs of promise? You and I. It's not just for Abraham. We're not just reading about, look what God did for Abraham. Look what God did through Moses. Look what God did for them. We are the heirs of his promise. He's doing this. For us, and we should be appreciative of it. I, again, New Living Translation, verse 17 says this God also abo- bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for different translations. Thank you for speaking through the Bible. Thank you for stooping in so many ways, stooping down to my level. Verse 17 goes on to say, it says, uh, to the heirs of his promise, the immutability of his counsel. Now, that's kind of like an odd phrase, immutability of his counsel. It sounds kind of theological. You know what it basically means? The unchangeableness of his will. God has a will, and it's unchangeable he, he, because He's God. By the way, He can make up His mind, and you don't have—you don't get to change it. So let's get the flow now. Verse 17: Thus, God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, which is it impossible—it's impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled to for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is before us. I keep wanting to stop because I realize each of those phrases is pregnant with ideas. There's all kinds of great truths in there. But first I want you to catch that phrase in verse 18, two immutable things. That means two unchangeable things. Did you know what? When I first read through it, I thought, wait, I see one. Where's the other one? Let me just make it easy on you. The two unchangeable things of God are, number one, and it's your next fill-in if you missed it, God's word. And number two, God's oath. you think it's the same thing, but it's not. It's like first he said it, and then he swore by an oath that he'd keep it. I mean, that's making things doubly sure, you know. Abraham and all his children, by faith, can trust God on the basis of two immutable things, God's word and God's oath. And God's promise can't be broken because it's the word of the living God. Now, I know that uh, I've, I've heard that before I moved to Idaho. <clears throat> Idaho was much simpler. Uh, I must have complicated it. And where people would make big business deals with a handshake. That's it. No contract. Just, all right, deal, deal. And they'd be thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars, a handshake. Or by their word. And they'd say, my word is my bond. And because they people were supposed to be trustworthy and they didn't need to write their name on a contract a hundred thousand times Their word was their bond you know what that's the way the Lord is his word is his bond and God's oath is trustworthy he stakes his divine reputation upon his word and those who look to God and our word to world today might go yeah but how do I know and how do I know God cares for me and and will will he be true to his word for me and let me just tell you yes We're going to look at that more deeper in this text today because one thing I want you to understand, first of all, is people talk about, is there anything God can't do? Is anything impossible for God? You know, there's a couple things, and you think, what? Well, one of them is mentioned right here in verse 18. For by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. You know, it's his nature, it's his character to be truthful. God can't lie. You think, well, that's... That's a bummer. There's something he can't do. No, I think that's a good thing that God can't lie. It's impossible for him to lie because it's against his very nature. It's kind of like, can't God do evil? No, it's against his nature. You know, I mean, how did. I like when I listen to Ray Comfort on, on uh, Line. He says, how many lies do you have to tell before you're a liar? You know, just one. If God told one lie, he'd be a liar. He's not a liar, okay? So the character of God is at stake here. And the character of God is holy, and he does not lie. A couple of verses I remember from my memory verse days when I used to carry that little pack around. Numbers 23, 19 was one of my favorite. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said it, and shall he not do it? Has he not spoken, and shall he not make it good? That's God. That's God's character. That's God's nature, and you could count on it. Another one, as I was looking up this topic this week is found in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 when Paul wrote to Titus and he says in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began. Folks you ever hear the expression God said it I believe it that settles it. Remember ever hear that one before? Well let me tell you it's God said it that settles it. Doesn't matter if you believe it or not. <clears throat> God said it that settles it. So his announcement of his promise is sure. And it's doubly sure when he chooses to take an oath to confirm it. Again, verse 18 in the New Living Translation. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope of Lies before us now. We've been looking at scary things when we looked at Hebrews 6 4 through 6, uh, but right now, the writer of Hebrews is writing to us as well as his original readers, and he's saying, Look. I want you to have great hope i want you to have strong consolation as it says in, in verse 18 that now we have a strong consolation it's funny i was looking at various commentaries i like what david gusek says here he says strong consolation doesn't depend upon your health hmm? i i well, as long as i'm feeling good i got strong consolation. you know what i got newsflash we're all gonna die So it doesn't depend upon your health. Strong consolation doesn't depend upon your personal circumstances, disabilities, or trials. Our strong consolation doesn't... Don't let your circumstances mess you up. Strong consolation can't be shaken by human reasoning. Strong consolation is stronger... Oh, I like this one. Thank you, David Gusek. Strong consolation is stronger than our guilty conscience. Have you ever done something wrong? and You feel like, oh, God doesn't like me now. I blew it. God's promises no longer apply to me, huh? Oh, the devil likes to run with that one. That's why I told you when I was a young Christian, uh, the Hebrews 6 chapter really messed with me because uh, I made a whole lot of mistakes. Ever make mistakes and feel like God's no longer on your side? Strong consolation is stronger than our guilty conscience. Thank you. One more Gusek gives us. Strong consolation rests in God's sure word huh so what gives me confidence well I've been good this week forget about that next week I might not right what gives me confidence God's character God's nature God's word God's oath he promised and his character backs it up I like it interesting as I was looking looking at commentaries, Spurgeon said something he went really deep with it because sometimes our lives just go in the dump have you ever heard That's nice. Have you ever had a time when um, you're doing well in the Lord but everything around you is falling apart? You know, as a pastor, sometimes you see people in their worst condition, and Spurgeon also did. He says this. uh, It's a full paragraph, so stick with me. Spurgeon said, it is a strong consolation that that can deal with outward trials when a man has poverty staring at him in the face and hears his little children crying for bread and when bankruptcy is likely to come upon him through unavoidable losses, when, when the poor man has just lost his wife and his dear children have been put in the same grave and when one after another, all earthly props and comforts have been given away, it needs a strong consolation then not in your pictured trials, but in your real trials, not in your imaginary whimsied afflictions, but in the real afflictions and the blistering storms of life, to rejoice then and say, Though these things be not with me as I would have them, yet had He made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, this is strong consolation. Well, I'm just kind of wondering as a pastor, I've seen tough times. What is when Spurgeon wrote that? What kinds of things was he seeing happening in his congregation and encouraging them that no matter what you're going through, have you noticed the economy is not too good right now? <clears throat> have you noticed the prices going up and everything? And have you noticed if you have a retirement account or your 501c3 or whatever, it's all going down? We have a strong consolation in Christ. And you know what? That never depreciates. There's never a depression or recession in the kingdom of heaven, though everything around us seems to fall apart. Our strength is in him father I just pray right now that if there's anybody in our midst who's going through a time of depression or worry or fear because of the economy or because of our government all that's happening in the world lord help us to turn our view towards you and find our strong consolation in you and not in our circumstances and lord as we continue in your word help us use your word to strengthen us in you lord the world offers no strength but you do Lord give us that strong consolation we pray in Jesus name amen I bet you got excited thought we we're ending church early right <clears throat> every now and then I just think you know we need to pray about that. okay verse 18 goes on to say a real key phrase that I didn't catch except that I do look at what other commentators say it says that uh, it's impossible to God to lie we we might have strong consolation who have listened to this phrase Fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is before us. Fled for refuge. Remember I told you this book was written to Jewish Christians? And when you use certain key phrases, it would trigger something in their mind. For us, fled for refuge doesn't mean a whole lot. To a Jewish Christian who is familiar with their Old Testament, the phrase fled for refuge would portray a real Old Testament picture of the cities of refuge. As a matter of fact, God set this up so that if anybody was ever accused of a crime or even maybe they accidentally killed somebody, you know, they're they're chopping wood and the, the axe head flies off the handle, hits a friend, kills them. The way they had it set back up in those days is they didn't have a police force. They defunded the No, what they did was they didn't have a police force. What they did in the the Old Testament was if somebody killed one of my relatives, it was my job as the oldest brother in the family to go and take that guy out. It was called the Avenger of Blood. That was the system in the Old Testament. So they also got set up a system to protect the innocent. And it was so that if I accidentally killed somebody, I know his relatives were going to come after me and kill me. That's just... The way the law was back then. But so I need protection. So God set up six cities of refuge. Uh, three on one side of the Jordan and three on the other side of the Jordan. So that whatever's closest to me, I'm going to take the one that's closest. Don't worry about vacation spots. I'm going to run, flee for refuge to a city of refuge. And then you were protected in that city while the elders were trying to decide if I was guilty or innocent or what the, the crime should be, I mean, excuse me, what the punishment should be. You know, the, the judges of the city would get together. And if they determined that it was manslaughter and not murder, then say it was me fleeing to the city of refuge. I would be allowed to live in that city of refuge undisturbed until the death of the high priest. When the high priest died, then I would be allowed to go back home and nobody could touch me. That was the way the law was set up. And then it's, look at different cultures, how they set things up. So when the writer of Hebrews, who was a, a Jew, is writing to the Jewish Christians and talking about the city of, of fleeing for refuge, this would pop in their mind immediately about the cities of refuge. And, and the avenger of blood couldn't get them and even after the death of the high priest. Now... <clears throat>
1: We hope you enjoyed today's program. You can find all of Pastor Mike's messages and any other information you would like about Calvary Chapel Eagle online at cceagle.org. In iTunes, you can subscribe to the podcast Calvary Chapel Eagle Sunday Morning. If you are new to the area and don't already have a home church, we would love for you to come check us out. We meet every Sunday, 10 a.m., at North Star Charter School, 839 North Linder Road in Eagle. That is why block north of Highway 44. You can call or text the church phone at 208-891-2635. Once again, you can get any information you need at cceagle.org. There you will also find a link to join our Facebook page. So until next time, remember, it's all about Jesus.
0: The power.